Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How you doing there? It's David. It's podcast time. I hope your week is going well. I hope you're not feeling too put out by level two, level three, level four. Level 42. Would you sing the song? (laughs) He was good in the bass, wasn't he? He was good. I didn't like the style of bass, but he was a good bass player. Yeah, he was a good bass. I wonder what level 42 would look like. Anyway, uh, how are you, Head? I'm good. I'm not so bad at all. Good, good. I tell you, I've got a thing in my mind. Go on, tell us. Dereliction. I was walking around Dublin the other day, and because Dublin is now empty, you see a lot of things that you didn't see before. You tend to look up a lot more because the streets are empty. We've talked about this before particularly with respect to Cork, because I remember doing going for a walk yeah. Yeah. from the Mardike to the sort of tip of Cork Port not that long ago and looking up and seeing how many derelict buildings are in our cities. I don't think there is urban architecture anywhere in the world which would tolerate what I would call such vandalism that we have allowed in this country old buildings to become vandalised, to go derelict, yeah. right? No other country that is interested in protecting their architectural heritage would actually do that. Also, these are places where people could live, you know, in, in terms of like the, the reimagining the city. And the budgets this week, by the way, we got the budget. We were out, we were out for a week. We got, I got too excited about it. Yeah, we're, we're always a bit premature. But there you go. <laughs> uh, the budget, what I would love in the budget is just one simple thing to say, we are going to penalise dereliction. So if you sit on a building and you allow that building to go to rack and ruin, you are going to be penalised. So you have a responsibility to the city, to the building, to owning something, to actually keep it in good nick. That's the first thing. The second thing is not only penalise people, but also give people an incentive. So, for example, if you have a building over the shop somewhere, right, Mm. and it's a little bit run down, you should get a tax break to actually build on it, to put an apartment in there. So the idea is to kind of, to try and get people living over the shop in cities, in towns, in yeah. Dublin and Cork and Galway, all these sort of places, right? It would be, budgets are so much more inventive if you think we're going to do just one big thing. Mm. 
And I think it could change. I just was, I was walking around the city the other day and my Todd, I just thought... Well, you know what? I, I was thinking about this as well recently with all that. It was the last week or the week before, the, the big hullabaloo about that old house in Balls Bridge. The O'Reilly. The O'Reilly. I wonder if they should call me The Mike Williams. <laughs> we do, though, don't the, we? The Davis. <laughs> but, you know, there was a, such a hullabaloo about that house. Being demolished. Being demolished. And yet it was sitting there derelict. For years. For years. Yeah, so so if, there, if there was the same kind of hullabaloo about the... We should pretend that every building housed a former provo. <laughs> Yeah, there so you go. I mean, yeah, a former revolutionary. Yeah, yeah blue like, plaques everywhere. D. McWilliams lived there. <laughs> okay, no, but I mean, that idea, and just, just because dereliction is vandalism for the property-owning yeah, classes. I That's what agree. it is. And it just struck me when I was walking around that we, we should just stand back and say, do we want post-COVID to do something realistic about making cities places to live? Mm-hmm. If we want to do that. And I think most people do. Most people listen to yeah, the podcast yeah. do that, right? Then what you've got to do is you've got to stop the vandalism that is dereliction, number one. And number two, you've got to encourage people to actually invest. Now, if, and I, I think it must be very difficult, and architects will explain to you, and builders will explain to you, it's difficult to convert buildings into units yeah. and it's expensive, then make it cheap by giving a tax break. This is actually how Temple Bar, and I know that had warts and all, was rebuilt from being a bus station, potentially, yeah. to actually being a thriving centre. People lived there. I remember living in Parliament Street years ago in one of those buildings that was, yeah. again, driven by a tax break. That Basically, the builder took a tax break to build it. And Parliament Street at the time, nobody lived there. Yeah. Now lots of people live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, that was... These are the things that get, get me down, John. I know. During I the know. week. But tell us, what are we doing this week? Okay, this week... We're going to go with the states. We're going to go deeper into the states. Yeah. Again, because the election's coming up. Well, we're three weeks away. We're three weeks away. And I am absolutely thrilled. We've got a conversation coming up with a fellow called Tom Frank. Yes. So Tom Frank changed the way Americans understand American democracy. In 2004, he wrote a beautiful book, beautiful title as well. It was What's the Matter with Kansas, right? (laughs) Right. So Kansas is, you know, the dead center of the United States. It's regarded as demographically to be the most representative state in the United States. It's very much, you know, remember we were doing the Wizard of Oz years ago? Dorothy was from Kansas. It was very much the wholesome center of America. Yeah, apple pie and all the rest. And And yeah, exactly. And his idea, and it was also quite a revolutionary state quite a revolutionary state in terms of quite sophisticated politically a long, long time ago. Yeah. Even under the 1890s, other stuff I like, all this, yeah. this you know, <laughs> William Jennings, Bryan and all that stuff. And, and, and It was also where, where uh, the Spanish flu came from, the Kansas flu. The Kansas flu. flu. It, the Kansas flu, it, it came from Arkansas, yeah. but it went to Kansas because Kansas was where the recruiting for the American military was. Yeah. So all the farm... It incubated and... In, incubated, in, yeah, yeah. You can tell Trump that is Kansas flu. <laughs> anyway, he wrote this book in 2004, What's the Matter with Kansas? And like a lot of political, cultural writers, he probably wrote the book, thought, yeah, okay, you know, I might be onto something here. Yeah. It became New York Times bestseller for weeks on end. Nobody in America talked about anything else. And what he did was he reframed what was going on in America... Very, very brilliantly. He said, look, what has happened here is that the right-wing Republicans have become the party. They used to be the party of the winners. 
Right. They've become the party of the losers. They've become the party of the left behind in Kansas. This is in 2004. This is, this is a, more than a decade before Trump. This is yeah. the interesting thing. He figured out what was happening. He said the Democrats, who used to be the party of the working class, used to be the party of the working man and the small farmer mm. in Kansas, okay? Mm. The Democrat always looked at them. They, through a process of changing their own DNA, suddenly became the party of Wall Street, the party of Silicon Valley, the yeah. party of Hollywood, yeah. entirely removed from the working man. And they decided to fight the culture wars based on their own agenda, the Democrats. Yeah. So LGBT, all of which is very important. Yeah. Abortion rights, all of which is very, very important. The, the sort of the liberal agenda, right? At the same time, the Republicans saw this and they said, hold on a second. We're going to fight this culture war as well. But we're going to fight this culture war on old school values. And what they managed to get is they managed to turn the Republicans, the blue collar workers, away from the Democrats to Republicans. They're called Reagan Democrats. They were basically Democrats who voted for Reagan and they shifted, right? And of course, they introduced the evangelical side, the religious side, which is big in the States, of course. Huge. But what Tom Frank said, they've done all this. However, once the Republicans get into power, they execute policies that are against the interests of the working class. So they have tax breaks for the mega rich, yeah. for the billionaires. Yeah. They cut fiscal expenditure. They cut education expenditure, right? They attack the trade unions. So what Frank was trying to do was understand how did that happen? How did my mom and dad, Democrat, his mom and dad he's talking about, yeah. and our family, Democrats, died in the wall, JFK Democrats, left of center, working people. How did they switch to become Republicans? Now, he wrote this in 2004. He's written amazing books since then. His his latest one's on populism, which he believes is a very good force. It's an anti-establishment, anti-elite force. But it's been, again, it's just been hijacked, right? Yeah, yeah. And so what he was talking about, it's exactly the same that happened in the UK. How, for example, the Tory party... Mm became the party of the north of England yeah. in the last election. Exactly the same. Yeah. Johnson understood, let's fight a culture war. Let's not talk about economics. Let's fight a culture war. So Labour becomes the party of upper middle class journalists from Islington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. the Tories become the party of the flat cap northerners and the people in West Midlands. Yeah. You know, the, the kind of Wolverhampton, Birmingham sort of people. Amazing. Even here, it, you could be said, right? See the way Fianna Fáil has lost? Fianna Fáil has profoundly lost its working class vote in Ireland. Yeah. Fianna Fáil always managed to be a working class party and a sort of business party, Yeah. right? Under Hahi, okay? And what was amazing about Fianna Fáil is they could be a business party and a working class party and paint themselves as being victims in the press, <laughs> which I thought was really good. Yeah. But they've lost that support. They've lost that to Sinn Féin, working class support. Yeah. And it's the same idea. They're fighting culture wars. You know, when I, when I see Fianna Fáil getting into bed with the Greens, for example, right? Which I'd be kind of a Green-ish person myself, yeah, right? Yeah. But worrying about cycle lanes and worrying about these, these are not things that click. Basically, Fianna Fáil became the party of the working man here because Fianna Fáil built houses. The majority of council houses in this country were built under Fianna Fáil administrations. Yeah, yeah. So people rewarded Fianna Fáil for having mm. given their granddad a house by giving them a vote for two or three generations. They've lost that. So what Tom Frank is talking about 
is a big, big canvas. And the way to write these big books is always, rather than start with the huge thing I talk about America, let's talk about Kansas, the state. Yeah. And then we'll use that as our template for looking at the world. So it's, it's that great way of writing nonfiction books. You go to the minutiae of the village. Yeah. And then you build out the lessons from there. extrapolate everything Yeah, else. so he's, will we go and talk to him? Absolutely. He's on the line. Tom, talk to me just before we talk about culture and ideas in America. What is the mood in the Beltway in Washington? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so the mood has been all through this this season of of panic and covid is has been you know one of panic and fear and 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 has also transitioned into a little bit of hate not a little bit a lot and then there's the larger problem of donald trump you know which everybody you know all right thinking people here inside the beltway hate and despise and that's the sort of one uh, bright spot on the horizon is that he's almost certain to lose here in a few in, in a month and so everybody'll be very pleased about that. But the uh, the overall feeling these days is just one of loathing, mm. you know, fear, hate. And, you know, increasingly as, so, you know, I'm, I'm here in the Beltway. This is actually a really well-informed part of America with a lot of highly educated people and it still has a functioning and even excellent newspaper, you know, the Washington Post. This is one of the most journalistically scrutinized areas in, in, the, in the world. You know, if you had to measure like journalists per square foot or something like that, and there is some kind of, if you had to do that, Washington would, ha- would rank probably first among American cities or first in cities in the world. It would, but be, the, you go it would to, be the place so, with the most swindled expense accounts, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm originally from Kansas City and there it's, the, the, the ratio would be completely the opposite. There's 2 million people there and the local newspaper has is down to something like a dozen reporters. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not funny. It's just, it's crazy. And this is happening everywhere you go in America. Newspapers are dying except for the ones in Washington and New York. Well, specifically the New York Times and the Washington Post. Every other newspaper is dying. They have to sell their headquarters. You know, like even the mighty Chicago Tribune, which oh, not all that long ago was the biggest circulation newspaper in America. I mean, they had to sell their building, this spectacular office building in downtown Chicago. You know, and it's just, uh, it's a state of ruination. And so, and, and as a result, you you have no idea what is going on in the city around you. You know what's going on in Washington because everybody talks about Trump all the time. But you have no idea what's going on in the city. You can hear gunshots, <laughs> but you have no idea what's going on. And, and what has filled its place, what's taken its place is A, the soap opera in Washington. And everybody talks about it now, everybody. And B, social media. And social media lives, exists to stoke hate and to make people despise one another. It exists for that purpose where you are constantly, you're, it's a war of all against all. You know, as somebody once said, and you're you're everybody is constantly trying to you know protect themselves from from uh, looking like a fool. It's you know it's like yeah. it's like the things that w- when I went first went into journalism in the late '80s and early 1990s, this was something that you you would publish a story and then you had to you know um, fend off various attacks on it or whatever. Uh, you know your your yeah, book. Uh, well, well, that's all. That's everyone now. That's everyone. Everyone's uh, uh, ego is on the line every single day. They're constantly at war with everybody else and it's as though we you you get this feeling from social media that you know 
you know, it's doing something to our brains. There's this, this feeling that you get in social media that life is all about scolding people. That's yep. what it is. There's that. And then this other weird thing, which is the soap opera. Like I was talking to a elderly member of my family the other day and I called him up and this is a, a man who has never really cared about politics. I always thought politics were for losers. And, uh, and, and I called him up he's got a, he's got and he immediately starts talking about Donald Trump and how awesome Donald Trump is. And I'm like, well, that's odd. You know, that's, that's you know, who, who got to him? And, uh, uh, you know, is it Fox News? Did he finally, you know, start watching? <laughs> and, then, and then I was talking to another elderly member of the family and, and, you know, called him up on the phone and immediately started talking. And again, uh, uh, this is a man that never gave a shit about politics. And immediately starts reciting like some CNN talking point about how awful Donald Trump was, you know, and it's like, it's like, don't you have anything else to do? It's the end. Of course not. It's, it's COVID time. There, it's, there is nothing else to do. Just sit here in, the, in, in your box and watch the TV and yell at one another. And shout at the TV. John and I yeah. have been in veteran yeah, exactly. TV shows. But let, let, let's, okay, so you've got the two elderly members of the family, okay? Let's talk about the States, okay? And I'll tell you why it's Irish people know our generation of Irish people. We know the Philadelphias, the New Yorks, the Bostons, the Chicagos, the San Franciscos, yeah. the LAs, yeah. if you're on the really swanky end of Ireland, right? And we don't know the bit in the middle that you talked about in What's yeah. the Matter with Kansas. We're going to start with Kansas and then I want to... I want to end with this this idea of populism, which I, I find absolutely intriguing. But tell me about the middle bit, the bit where you're. <laughs> it's a big, it's a big bit. It's a, yeah, but it's like it's like it's like when Americans go to holidays in Europe. I did Europe, I did France, Spain, Italy, yeah. Germany in five days. Okay, so let's talk about Kansas, that those parts of America that Trump connects with, identifies with. Bizarrely, because he's it pure is bizarre. New York. Can, can I tell you why? Yeah, he's a New Yorker. So when I was growing up, growing up in Kansas City, we were the uh, antithesis of New York. That's how we understood ourselves. That we were we were down to earth. Uh, we you know we were uh, ordinary Americans. We weren't exalted. We were unpretentious. We didn't boast. We didn't brag. And and uh, the it, it helped that the Yankees, the New York Yankees, would. Uh, every year would defeat the Kansas city Royals, which is our local mm -hmm. baseball team would defeat them in the playoffs. <laughs> it would just like make yeah. us, you know, hate New York even more, but, but that's how we understood ourselves and that they would embrace a guy like this, you know, Donald Trump, this not, not just a New Yorker, but the most New York, the loudest, most boastful, most vulgar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all the New all Yorker. the stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was cheating on his third wife with a porn star <laughs> and paying her off. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's like it's like as foreign to Kansas City as it's possible to be, and yet they have embraced him in this extraordinary way. So why? Come on, let's explain to us. Why don't we just start in on the story and, and different aspects of it will come to me. But there's a larger story in America, uh, this larger political story that's been going on through the course of my life. And that is, you know, well, there's two sides to this, this one great story, but it's the big turn, the big turn to the right. And most people think of it beginning with Ronald Reagan. And that's not inaccurate. That's, that's roughly correct. It sort of began with Ronald Reagan. But what they don't re often recall, but was 
So I was 15 when Reagan got elected and I was a little, a little Tory at the time. And I thought Ronald Reagan was a great guy. Are you, are you and serious? I, I, yeah, I changed. I changed my mind later. Well, I was fifteen. Yeah, and uh, fifteen. And I the was, last thing you're going to be is a Tory. Well, that, it, but that's what makes it so fascinating. Talk to me. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, why did I like Ronald Reagan? And there was there was just there was something about the guy, and it was the way that he spoke in this very reassuring way. So we're coming out of the Carter administration. It had been one national humiliation for America after another. You know, there was the oil prices were high. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't put gas in your car. There was that. There was a recession. Interest rates were at 20%. And then the Iranians took those hostages. Do you remember all this? I'm yeah. older than you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here comes Reagan. And he, I had admired Jimmy Carter because he was, he seemed like a good guy and all that. But here comes Ronald Reagan. And he speaks in this reassuring way. And he speaks in very simple, with easy to understand solutions. And it, he was almost perfect for a kid who's 15 years old and doesn't really understand the world, but really wants to, wants to be told that there is an answer to things and that the answer is let's be more moral or something like that. And here yeah, comes Ronald no, Reagan and, and I fell for it. I got over that fairly quickly, but I often think about that period of my life because, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating that I did once that I was once a, a conservative, but what we don't remember about Ronald Reagan, what I find more and more is it that people don't remember is that the Republicans have been and the conservative movement specifically, the way conservatism triumphs is by pretending to be an ally of working class people, specifically working class people. Although we Republicans only back then rarely used that phrase. They use it more today. Trump uses it all the time, as a matter of fact. But uh, they, that's been their appeal for a long time going back at least to Reagan and, and even more accurately going back to Richard Nixon, who used to talk about the silent majority, the ones who aren't protesting, et cetera. He was talking to my people in Kansas when he said that. And Reagan, with his kind of Frank Capra, Reader's Digest way of talking about, you know, ordinary Americans, you know, and Reagan would say things like, I don't like to hang around with these executives. I know, you know, I'm a Republican and everything and I have to do that, but I'm much more comfortable hanging around with the people with calluses on their hands, which was just such complete bullshit. Yeah, but, but it was a good image. It was a good image. He said things like that all the time. And that was his image. That's, you know, he is the only union president ever to be elected president of the United States. And then, of course, he did incredible damage to the labor movement in America. Like Thatcher, he led the sort of the, the big counterattack against, against unions, you know, and that succeeded in basically destroying the power of organized labor in America. That's, that's Reagan's doing. But the way he appealed to us was with this kind of, of phony populism. And I use the word phony. That's that's important. We'll come back to that. But that's that's been going on for a long time. And in that, and, and uh, George W. Bush was good at it. George Bush's dad even did it. Would you remember this extremely preppy President George B Bush the first? Yes. Would, yeah. He was like everybody I ever met in Boston. He was the preppy's preppy. And yet yeah. he, you're saying, and yet he ma he masqueraded as a man of the people. And he would when he went ran for election in '88. Do you remember? And he he uh, he would drive around the country listening to country music all the time, and that was supposed to signify, you know, what a man of the people he was. And he would um, he would eat pork rinds, which is this kind of southern. Are you familiar with this? It's a kind no, of but I, I kind of get it. Yeah, I get it. Treat a southern snack. It's treats, food. yeah. And and he would tour flag factories. 
<laughs> that one always cracked me up. And, uh, and, and, and he actually was able to pull this off. And even, even this guy, the ultimate preppy, was, uh, was described by his supporters as a populist, which is just like, you know, it, it makes you want to just throw up. And his son, George Bush Jr., you know, even more so with that Texas accent and all that crap. And uh, uh, Donald Trump is just one in a long list of these guys who do this act. And then, of course, they get into power. And what do they do? They, uh, you know, they, they cut taxes for their for the rich, for their friends. They deregulate their friends. They go to war against unions. They do everything that a Republican typically does. But they make the sale uh, in exactly the opposite way. But th- But then you say, but that's, you know, Tom, that's not... That's not enough, and it's not. The picture is actually bigger than that because there's this other side of it. You know, that Republicans, and that's what, that's what, you know, I wrote a whole book about this. It was called What's the Matter with Kansas? It was about the way that the extreme right has, you know, uh, one of the, the, the innovations that they pioneered is uh, reaching out to white working class people and persuading them that they're together, that there's this kind of solidarity between these guys and and, uh, and working class people, which just seems ridiculous, except for if it wasn't for this other factor that's going on, which is the transition of the Democratic Party away from, you know, the Democratic Party is our, you know. It's your Labor I, Party. I, it's your Labor Party. Exactly. So you know that. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's often hard for people to understand that. It's, it's the, it is the party of the left in our stupid two-party system. And they are on a 50-year experiment in this country to see if you can have a party of the left that doesn't care about, <laughs> about working-class people, <laughs> that has lost interest in work. That's, that's the experiment that we're engaged in. And it began at about the same time as the Republicans began their great move to the right. The Democratic Party decided we aren't going to be the party of organized labor anymore. That's a, you know, a kind of a dead end. We don't really like those people. They, they don't have good taste, you know, et cetera. And they, they decided they want, this is in the late 60s and early 70s, they wanted to be something different, right? It was the age of Aquarius. And they wanted to be the party of all these enlightened kids coming off the college campuses who were such geniuses and had, you know, such, you know, so attuned to, you know, whatever it was. Like Bill Clinton. Uh, and Exactly. Bill Clinton later becomes the embodiment of this, but it went, it was going on for decades, even before Bill Clinton became president. And uh, uh, basically they were, they were going to be the party of the, uh, of those people in Boston that, that, that yeah. pissed you off so much back in the day. No, they were going to be the party of these, of, of what we call the professional class, these uh, very wealthy people with uh, advanced degrees from fancy universities who are so incredibly prosperous and also so incredibly enlightened and so smart and have such good manners and know about, you know, how, that, that you have to recycle and you have to treat yeah. the environment. That's they've got great, the- great bookshelves and they've got great taste. And oh, go- yes. It's a true, you know, I was thinking the other day, a while ago I was talking, these are like what I would call Burning Man Democrats. Yeah. That they go to Burning Man that's their thing. It's they're they're incredibly they're beautiful. They don't look like any of us. Okay, number one, uh, number two, they're wealthy. They tick all the right boxes in terms of social liberal agenda, but they're very different to a blue collar working class family. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh my God! Absolutely. There it is. Those people on Newberry Street. But it you know this. By the way, one of the only the only state that George McGovern won in 1972 was Massachusetts. And Massachusetts is sort of the core of this whole 
change in the Democratic Party and, you know, the home of all these universities, et cetera. And it's not just that they are alien to blue collar people. Blue, blue collar people think of them as the elite. These are the enemy. These are the people on the other side of the table when you go to bargain for, you know, when you go to negotiate for whatever it is. These are the people who fire you. You know, these are the people who sue you. This is when you go to the county government to get a permit to do whatever. This is the guy that refuses to give it to you. This is the guy at the bank that denies your loan. And this is also a rising class of people, you know, the uh, new economy, uh, post-industrialism, all this shit. And the Democratic, the, the sort of leaders and great thinkers of the Democratic Party are reading that literature about the new economy and the information age and post-industrialism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're saying to them, and by the way, they say this openly, this is not a conspiracy or anything like that. They're, they're open about this. They say, this is who we need to represent. We need to be the party of these people. You know, the economy is changing and we need to be on the side of the winners. So they're doing this yeah. experiment yeah. in this country yeah, yeah, yeah. where the party of the left is going to be on the side of the economic of the winners, winners. And the party of yeah. the right is on the side of the losers. Right, but not really. <laughs> okay, so tell me more. <laughs> but not really. Of course, who they really answer to are the Koch brothers and the oil billionaires. And so you basically have a situation in America. This is where we are, where we're at today. You know, Hillary Clinton, after she lost the election, she was going on this lecture tour all over the world. And one of the things she said, she likes to point this out, is that she won the areas that produce like two thirds of the, of the gross national product of the United States, the areas that are prosperous and growing and affluent, basically. And this is the Democratic Party basically crowing about their the success. I mean, she didn't win, but the long-term success of their great vision to make themselves into the party of the winners in our economy. And, and what does that look like when the left party in a system is the party of the economic winners? And I would submit to you, that's what that's America right now is what it looks like, where you have just complete political dysfunction Everything is fucked up. You have this monster in the White House. Trump is not the end of this. This is going to go on. And they're going to come up with someone even more monstrous, but who's a better politician. Trump is a terrible, terrible politician who won, I mean, strictly because the Democrats dropped the ball, you know, because Democrats don't, you know, following their strategy, they're, they're utterly complacent and, uh, and, we're, and, you know, allowed him to beat them. But they're going to win. They're going to win now because of Trump's sheer and utter incompetence in dealing with this pandemic. That's a big and, call, um, Tom. It just seems to be so up in the air at the moment. You know, uh, that's to be debated at. That's it. There's only yeah, a few weeks and, left. And, so. uh, and I don't, you know, I don't want to be like um, rock solid about that. I mean, obviously, anything can happen, and we have no idea what uh, the the effect of the pandemic is going to be on turnout. Yeah. I mean, all of these people are afraid to go to the polling place. And so they're voting by mail and all kinds of things could go wrong with voting by mail. I mean, we just don't know. And uh, yeah, any, of course, you're, you're right to sound that note of caution that anything could happen. But if you look at, I mean, at the, at the way things are going now, but it, it's just, it's been, it's frustrating and um, maddening on so many levels because the entire democratic strategy, I don't want to say entire, but the strategy of our kind of what I call the pundit bureau in this country uh, because remember how I was talking about the news media earlier and how it's been reduced to just a shadow of its former self. And one of the things that this has meant is that the, the, there's just a very small number of people who comment on everything uh, officially, right? Yeah. I mean, we're all we're all pundits on on Twitter now, and we're all pundits on Facebook. But in the little realm of of accepted media um, 
commentary. It's a, it's a tiny little universe, and they all agree with each other on nearly everything. So I, I refer to them as the Pundit Bureau. Yeah, and we, we in, call them the in, commentariat here. Yeah. yeah, and in their minds, the the, the way that you uh, go after Donald Trump is you constantly mock his supporters for being stupid and being racist and being vulgar. And this has had the entirely predictable effect of forcing those people to dig in their heels and to uh, rally behind their awful, stupid leader. And so you have this weird situation here, David, where, you know, I've seen, we've seen other bad presidents in my lifetime. We were talking about George Bush Sr., uh, Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon. These are all people that the public turned against pretty massively. I mean, I remember the turn against Carter by the time the election came around, there was like, I mean, nobody was on his side. He lost overwhelmingly. Well, that's not happening this time. It deserves to happen. Donald Trump has been a singularly awful president and he deserves to be deserted by the public, but they, they're not doing it. This is what I want to get to the, to the nub of. The reason they're not doing it is because, number one, they don't like the democratic message. Yeah. Number two, they kind of identify with his ridiculous blue-collar billionaire idea that he yeah, sells to I was everybody. Yeah, you, you, you remember know, that phrase. I do, I do. And I also remember the phrases. <laughs> the I know blue-collar blue billionaire. Yeah, I know. It's a brilliant one, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> the, but, they, you know, when he, when he said, you know, I love the uneducated. Do you remember he said that, you know? You sure, know, yeah, he's, yeah. Well, wait, what makes that, it, that sounds stupid, right? But what makes it sing, what makes it work, is that all these years the Democrats have been telling us if you don't go out and get a college education, then you deserve what has happened to you, you know, then you deserve. And, and the fact is what they're not reckoning with, with a Democratic, you know, this is the Democrats. Education is the solution to everything. You know, your, your way of life is, is, is being destroyed. You need, to, you need to go to college. And what they're not reckoning with is that not everybody can go to college. And even if you do go to college, you're not necessarily going to go to Harvard, are you? And we exactly. all, I mean, the, the whole idea of education is a meritocracy. And for the party of the left to be constantly embracing meritocracy and that the people on top, the people that got good grades deserve everything that they have. What does that say about the 99% of us who, who didn't get that? You know, who didn't do those things? What happens to us? We're still citizens. And here's Trump saying that. And, and they laugh at him for saying that, by the way. That's a big punchline here in this country. But there's something like... I don't know if Trump is a genius or if he just uh, stumbles onto saying these things, but he really caught something there. He, you know, he, he put his finger on something there, you know, and the way the Democrats laughed at him. By the way, so the Democrats have partially defused all of this hatred and this anger by nominating Joe Biden, who is a truly inoffensive guy, you know, a kind of grandfatherly figure, reassuring you know, that sort of thing. But he offers, like, literally, uh, politically, nothing. Nothing. There's no no programs that he's, <laughs> that he's it, it, Over here, when, when you say somebody's harmless, it's actually a bit of an insult. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, but, but Tom is right. Like, the idea that if America, we started this discussion, um, he said America is angry, it's divided, it's bitter, it's pissed off. Biden offers you the idea of, like, I'm the... I'm not your uncle. I'm your actual great uncle. Your grand. I'm your granddad's brother. Okay. I'm yeah. your granddad's yeah. brother, who's all right, who's decent, who never did a bad thing, who's always. In, that's not a bad place to be. And it's. And I would. I would suggest that it's actually. Um, so the the Democrats here have stumbled onto the right guy for the right moment because in this climate of fear, dread, hate, 
he does seem like a reassuring guy. And uh, I mean, he seems like that. He's going to get elected and it's going to be another disastrous presidency. But, you know, at least he does seem like that right now. That is the brand image. And that's that it's a good brand image for the moment. No, but, you know, what I want to come back to is this idea of the culture war, right? Because this is something that the Brits have it. We in Ireland don't have it just yet. The Brits have it. Oh, you'll get it. You'll get it eventually. I think it's catching. It's like COVID. It's yeah. catching, and you can you can thank you can thank us in Kansas for it. It's uh, uh, Kansas, by the way, is where the original culture war began, which was prohibition. Did it, it begin was, in uh, Kansas? It, it, yeah, in the late nineteenth century. Yeah, they called it the Kansas idea. It, it's a really it's a singularly stupid idea, but. <laughs> <laughs> it began in Kansas and uh, uh, they had prohibition there uh, for a very long time. Tom, can I just stop you there? What, ethnically, because this has always intrigued me about prohibition. Are Kansans Germans? What are you, what, like, what was the core ethnicity? Were you Swedes? Were you Scandinavians, Germans? Who, who, who exactly. were they? And a lot of English and uh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, French and Germans. Recent immigrants in America were very much against prohibition because they retained their habits from the old country. So yes, the, the Germans Italians were, and Irish, and also the Germans, Germans were, were very much against prohibition. Yeah, because, because they, they were big boozers, and, and also yeah. they made the booze. That's right, the Anheuser Busch, and yeah, et cetera, it, et cetera. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it, it was uh, largely uh, uh, evangelical Christians were the big supporters of prohibition. Kansas has its share of those as well. Come here. Is it any coincidence that Dorothy was from Kansas? I mean, the, the, the picture you're painting is this wholesome American, sort of slightly, how would you say, Anglo-Saxon, but not particularly Anglo-Saxon, but state that represented everything wholesome about the United States. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, it was Kansas used to be the rep, most representative place and it, it's not so representative anymore, but it used to be that its demographic uh, breakdown was almost precisely the country as a whole. Not anymore, but it was when I was a kid. And so the test marketers would always descend on Kansas City every time they wanted to roll something out. So, for example, um, in my neighborhood, we had cable TV in the early 70s. This is long before wow. anybody else had it. Yeah. And they had, uh, I don't know, I know you don't care about these things, but McDonald's. The, uh, the Irish food chain. Uh, no, just <laughs> kidding, just kidding. Uh, McDonald's had uh, this sandwich called the McRib, which is, <laughs> they rolled it out in Kansas when I, when I was in high school and my friends and I would, we loved these things. Anyhow, but it was, it, 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 test marketers are forever doing their tricks in Kansas City and thereabouts. <laughs> doesn't, re- doesn't really matter anymore, but yeah, it's supposed to be representative of the rest. Tom, you said that Trump will lose, you think, in a couple of weeks. I, I think so, but but, yeah, but, but uh, anything could happen, like you but said. The but the culture war, the culture war that you talk about, you know, the idea that the Democrats lost the culture war to the conservatives or the Republicans, because the Republicans identified with white working class folk and said, your concerns are my okay. concerns, even though, as you said, it was a great bait and switch. They actually didn't right. care. Right. They actually the, yeah. ended up, cutting taxes for the ultra-wealthy, et cetera. Yeah, always. Does, where, like, you know, project forward a wee bit in America, right? What's all this going to do to the States? Does it mean that your politics is extraordinarily, it's kind of stuck at the moment between Democrats Dysfunctional. And the word yeah. is dysfunctional. Well, what's, what's it going to do? It's already done it. 
it's called inequality. You know, the, you've got mm-hmm. like this it, the, where the, the all the economic gains of you know years and years and years have gone into the pockets of a, a very small number of people. When I say very small, I mean like ten people. <laughs> you know, for a country of three hundred million, it's 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 extraordinary. And you know, like like uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, the guy that owns Amazon or that that started Amazon. Uh, you know, has prospered in the course of this pandemic in this extraordinary way, but like prospered personally. And, uh, uh, you know, it's already come to pass, the wages of conservatism. So, you know, my latest book, by the way, and you've, you brought up so many interesting things here, but my latest book is about the 1890s, you know, which was this, this hell zone of inequality. It was in the early days of industrialization. And every, you know, the uh, inequality was out of control. Monopolies were ruling the country and, and political corruption was in your face. It was everywhere. Well, it's the exact same today. But you, the, the question of the culture wars, my whole theory of the culture wars, because I, I you know, back in tw- almost 20 years ago now, I went back to Kansas to study what had gone wrong, how this state had turned so far to the right, and specifically how working class people had signed up with the conservative movement, which was doing them, you know, objectively, economically speaking, was doing them such incredible harm. How could this happen? You know, that was the question that I tried to answer. And that's basically been the question I've been trying to answer ever since. But one of the answers was the culture wars. Because once you start drilling down into all of our recent cultural battles, uh, you know, the media, Trump versus the media, or, uh, you know, all these things having to do with school, with education, or uh, abortion, even, the, you know, the, 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 the great, abor- which you even in Ireland, you've, you've managed to come to some kind of solution on that. We're still fighting about it. <laughs> and it drives me crazy that, we're, you know, this is still going on. Uh, but Here's the thing. When you drill down into these issues and you talk to the supporters uh, and you read their literature, all of them are just thinly disguised ways of talking about social class in America. So there's this huge, like, you know, you, we never talk about social class openly in America. I mean, Trump does now. He talks about it uh, quite a bit. But generally speaking, we don't talk about it. It's considered a rude, it's vulgar. Uh, it's, you know, we, ha- we talk about race all the time. I mean, this is, a, you know, something that really makes people uncomfortable, but we talk about it constantly. But we don't talk about social class. And when you dig down into the literature of, of the culture wars, every single one of them is a veiled way of talking about, about social class. That you, the average, you know, ordinary, unassuming American, i.e. working class, you're sitting there on your couch watching TV and they are like in your face with this vulgarity. You know, these Hollywood uh, uh, billionaires and they're, these superstars are, you know, Whatever it is, offending your values, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 insulting the flag, insulting your country, insulting you, and it's always the elite. This is the word that the conservatives have used, uh, you know, and they're they're so good at it. It's always the elite against you, the uh, average American, uh, the the normal American, as they like to say. It's always the elite with their perverted values, their perverted New York City, uh, Los Angeles, Hollywood values versus you, the happy little unassuming American doing your job down there in Wichita. And this is obviously, now that I put it this way, this is a way of talking about class without talking about economics. 
And they're very, very, very good at this. And they dream up new culture wars. Well, the one that we're in now, the media, you know, uh, God, Trump versus what he calls the fake news, you know, who are constantly insulting you and looking down on you. And the, the, the really sick fact of it is, David, they do look down on you. They really are an elite, you know? And this is the, yeah, the, what absolutely. Just, it burns me up that they can't see it. it. Trump's actually right about some of this stuff. And it's like, we're, we're stuck in this stupid fight and we can't get out of it. And we're going to go down to the bottom fighting with each other. Like, 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 you know, I don't know what the metaphor is. Fill it in, but it, it you know. <laughs> Tom, can I ask you, you reckon that Biden will probably win. So yeah. what do you reckon four years of Biden will bring? The same shit. He's, he said, <laughs> look, he's, he's said, he's, he's said openly, he's not going to do anything uh, uh, spectacular. He's not promising us anything. He says status quo ante. I mean, he didn't use those words, but he's like, we're going to go back to the, uh, to where we were under Obama. It, he's promised nothing. I mean, even the, the kind of the big reforms that we really need in America, like a universal health care system, which we could really use right now, believe me. Uh, he said he would veto that. <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, nice move, Biden. But look, it's better than where we're headed now. It's better than the, you know, the uh, toboggan ride to hell that we're on right now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about populism. We're going to talk about, because I love this idea that basically America, populism is a force in America against the elites, which yes. has been a third way force. And it's actually fascinating. Yeah. And you know what I find? Let's actually talk a wee bit about that. Is that, you know, the idea that populism is described by all classes and all sides as some sort of cheap suit approach to democracy, some sort of very, very easy sloganeering way. But in actual fact, it's, it's, it's a vibrant anti-elite movement. Yes, it is. Although it's not, there's not much of it left anymore, but it, that's, what it, that's what it was and what it has been from time to time in American life and could be again. But uh, oh, anyhow, this, this is something that drives me up the wall because I cannot, you know, the Democrats have basically in this country, they, they used to care about my views, but they've completely uh, tuned me out. And there's no way to persuade them of this stuff anymore. And it's just absolutely frustrating. Why did they drop him. Bernie? Because Bernie seems to They me- hate that guy. They hate that guy. Well, he is the populist tradition. That's yeah. uh, that he is. He, he represents it. Uh, I think, you know, I've wondered about that a lot myself because their hatred for him is a, uh, it's like their hatred for Trump, not quite as much, but he was just absolutely intolerable to them. It was like, it's like something that you're allergic to. Uh, you know, they had an allergic reaction to him. And you take someone like Elizabeth Warren, who is, she had a lot of the same positions on the issues and they didn't despise her. You know, she was, she was okay, but there was something about Bernie Sanders that they just felt that was just intolerable. And I've met Bernie Sanders and he's a... Um, you know, he's a thoughtful man. And, uh, you know, I just don't understand why people disliked him so very much. My, my sort of working hypothesis on this is that the reason they hate him is because he represents that, you know, we were talking earlier about how the Democrats turned their back on their, on their past identity it, beginning in the 70s, but really with Bill Clinton. Uh, Bernie represents that old identity. He would be a, a repudiation of their generational project 
you know, that generational project of all those, all those uh, ebullient young men walking down Newberry Street in the 1970s and 80s, you know, and Bernie Sanders is like the one saying, no, you're going the wrong way. He's the, you know, the well, Jeremiah I, in the wilderness. I'm going to tell you something. Bernie set up a thing called the Sanders Institute, and he asked about 20 people to be fellows of it. Yours truly is one of them. And I went up ah. to, yeah, no, and I went up to Vermont, and I sat and I listened to and I contributed to this extraordinarily chaotic debate. What it, but what it struck me was absolutely what you're saying, is that this represented fascinatingly democratic American populism, but it scared the shit out of everybody. Yep, that's right. But it would be, it would be very helpful, I think, at this point. You know. Okay. Well, we will leave it there. You're you're part of the gang now. That's it. Okay. Hey, I, I, I accept. I'm in. I'm in. Let's right. do it. But, okay. uh, let's let's do it. Let's do another episode next week, and we'll see what's happening. Maybe maybe then like Trump will be a sure winner, and I'll be oh my god, David, he's gonna win again. He's gonna get reelected. Oh shit. <laughs> Tom Frank, take care of yourself, man. Cheers, Tom. Thank Bye. you. We'll talk. Bye. 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 Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We'll definitely have Tom Frank on again. He was great. He's great. He, he was is, loving it. He was loving it. Well, you see, the thing about it, this is the, this is the joy of podcasts, really, over radio. Because, you know, I've done radio for years and sort of formal TV interviews. Yeah. People's personality doesn't come out. They've got a, they're on message. It's like you've got two seconds to talk about this, 20 seconds to talk about that. And you don't actually get to know the person a wee bit. He was well, great, crack. He was format's great, great, yeah. But tell us, at the end there, you mentioned Bernie. Yeah. Where, where is Bernie now? What, what's happening? He's ducked out of the race, obviously, but is he still part of the... Oh, very much so. He's, he's campaigning all the time. But Tom was saying that they hate him. Okay, so remember I've always said two things, right? The left seek traitors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. the right seek converts. Yes. So amongst the left, what it becomes, it's, it's, it's almost like an orthodoxy. You're not orthodox enough, right? So the people who really... And you see this in Ireland as well. The mm. Labour Party people 
don't hate anyone like they hate the Socialist Workers' Party. <laughs> and the Socialist yeah. Workers' Party hate, or they are the people before profit, and they hate the left of Sinn Féin and whatever. Right? So the left hate, I mean, it's like a schism. It's like catechism, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, you weren't on the cross with Jesus. Yes, I was. You were with Barabbas or whatever, right? Okay. <laughs> so whereas the right always think, well, we'll hold our nose and we'll just get into power, right? So that's the first thing. So the left yeah. in America splits like the left everywhere, right? Mm. You know, and the great example was was in the UK where David Miliband and his brother, Ed Miliband, David Miliband was obviously the much better candidate. Yeah. But Ed went for the trade unions. The trade unions went for Ed. Then the trade unions ousted David Miliband and Ed Miliband just wasn't as good a candidate. No, he wasn't. You know, at the end of the day, he yeah. wasn't one as good a candidate. He was a bit so, insipid, wasn't he? Well, you see that all the time. He mm. just didn't have the same sort of charisma his brother had, right? Yeah. But what... Tom Frank is saying, it's very important, he's saying, look, the left have to be left, right? They have to deliver for the working person cheap houses, some sort of tenure over income, mm. some sort of sense that your, your job's going to be okay, free school, health care. These are big left-wing ideas, yeah. you know? But I was, the reason I was saying it was chaotic in Bernie's was because I've always noticed as well, if you do any talks to the left, they're very bad, really, really, really bad at getting things organized. Right. Right? And they get overexcited. They get overexcited. There was, a great, there was a great quote from Oscar Wilde, right? You know, George Bernard Shaw yeah. was a complete socialist. Right, yeah, yeah. Set yeah. up the Fabian Association, et cetera. And he was in London, and the, the two most famous Irish people in the late 19th century in London <laughs> yeah. were George Bernard Shaw and Oscar Wilde. Yeah, right? okay. And, of course, Shaw was trying to convert Wilde to socialism, yeah. to leftism. Right, because he knew that if you could get Wild in there, that was a great scalp to get, you know, whatever. And Shaw and Wild are writing to each other, and what Shaw is trying to say to Wild, "Why won't you become a socialist?" And Wild retorts beautifully, "Because their meetings go on too long." <laughs> Isn't that great? But it's true. Socialist <laughs> meetings go on. They're, they're brutal timekeepers, <laughs> right? And I know when you do festivals, you have to keep to time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You yeah. know, and they can't. So the, the birdie one was great. It was really fascinating. But Jesus, we arrived at 9 a.m. We were still talking about freaking half two in the morning. Chaos. But it was great. So any lefties out there, keep time a little yeah. bit more. We're speaking of time, Mike. You know, Time to go, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Listen, thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Now, while I have you, while I have your ear, if you like the podcast, if you like what John and I are doing, if you like the stories, you like the research, if you want to learn economics, if you want to do a twice a month bespoke tutorial called Ask Mac, if you want to do the any questions and you want to listen and, and ask us questions, by all means, we would love to hear from you. So support us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. It's probably the best few quid you're going to spend. <laughs>